Judges chapter 17. If you're using the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, that's on page 251. Page 251. We are in the midst of, or well this morning we're completing a series where we've gone through the uh, whole book of Judges. So this morning we have chapter 17 through 21, which is a, a little longer than is normally the uh, preaching diet, uh, handling five chapters in one service, but we pray and we trust that God will uh, bless and use His Word, uh, no matter if we get five verses or five chapters. Uh, so thank you for being with us, um, and we all pray together that the Lord would uh, conclude our time and judge as well. So with that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you with thankfulness and with gratitude for your word. We come before you also to acknowledge that which these next five chapters will reveal ever so clearly, and that is the wickedness of our hearts. Father, I pray that your word would be used by you, the great surgeon who uses the word to cut us deep and cut us where we need healing. I pray that your word would be a gift to us in opening our eyes to you. Lord, may we see your holiness and your disdain for sin. And may we see sin and its effects and what happens when it burns like a wildfire, even amongst the people of God. So Lord, would you give us the grace to sit under your word, even if it presses heavily upon us. But may the word pressing heavily upon us push us all the more strongly and certainly to Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. In his book, Perfect Soldiers, Terry McDermott told of the personal backgrounds and histories of many of the 9-11 hijackers. In his research and in his telling of the story of many of these men, he uncovered that uh, a lot of these guys were born to middle class or to even upper middle class families. Many of them went to colleges and studied subjects like business and engineering and literature. Some of these men even went on to marry and to start families and to begin what by all appearances would be normal average lives. And so as McDermott worked through the histories and the stories of these men, a question that comes to your mind as you read this and and see some of their backgrounds is, so what happened within these men that took them from one place to the terrible events of that Tuesday morning, September 11th, 2001? What he unpacked was that in many of these guys that started in the 1980s or early 90s, when when they would begin to be radicalized through repugnant, evil teaching and false religious views. And this bad theology, this bad worship that began to permeate through them would lead to a searing of consciences. A searing of consciences that was so deep that it initially would lead to these men to, to having strained relationships with neighbors and co-workers and, 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 and all those that came across their paths. And it seared even deeper to ultimately lead to the destruction of lives, both in their relationships and their families, as well as in those events on 9-11. 
You see, what happened within these men was a pattern of progressive deterioration. Progressive deterioration where it begins with false worship and it leads to seared consciences and it takes you to the bottom of destruction of lives. Frankly, 9-11 is not an outlier either. On a macro scale, on a large level, you could look at the roots of events like the Holocaust or events like uh, the American practice of slavery 150 and 200 and 250 years ago and see many of the roots of such tragic, abhorrent behavior. And going even further back, we can see this same kind of progressive deterioration in Judges chapter 17 through 21 amongst even the people of God. So as has been stated this morning, we're concluding our study in Judges that we've been walking through all summer. In these final five chapters, we don't walk with any judges as we've seen throughout the rest of the book, but we actually walk alongside of and see the state of the people as a whole, the people of Israel. And the theme that we see throughout these last five chapters is what the author says on two occasions. So if you were to look at chapter 17, verse 6, and then also at the very end of the book in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 21, verse 25, you see uh, this little line. It says, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. Now the NIV, uh, the translation in the Bibles in the P-Rack in front of you says everyone did as he saw fit. Frankly, I prefer the ESV's translation, the English Standard Version's translation of this line, which is, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I think that more conveys the seriousness and the destructiveness and the danger of people doing right in their own eyes when they are blinded by their own sin. So we're going to see this progressive deterioration, false worship, seared consciousness, destruction of lives. And we're going to begin with false worship in the people of Israel. And so when I say worship, false worship, I don't mean this, this, uh, like they chose the wrong songs or they lined out their worship services in a wrong pattern. I mean, I mean what they believe about God, what, the, what that says about their, their worship or their attitude or their hearts towards God. So that's more the, the field that we are operating, operating in today when we say false worship. Uh, You could say false theology or what they believe. Whatever the case is, however you want to word it, that's where we are. So we're going to do do a fair amount of reading this morning. Ultimately, over the course of these five chapters, we're going to read about 50% of it. And then I'll give kind of updates and tell you what's happening in other sections as we go. So let's go ahead and dive in and begin reading in Judges 17, verse 1. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you, and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. And when he returned the the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother. And she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image and the idol. And they were put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah, he had a shrine and he made an ephod and some idols and installed one of his sons as his priest. And in those days, Israel had no king. 
everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so you introduce this guy, Micah, and his mom, and see some pictures of, of, of worship that was instituted earlier in the Old Testament, or earlier in the law of God, is starting to kind of get a little uh, sideways there with idols and things of that nature. And, but the thing is, we're gonna, as we read on, we're going to see it's not just uh, something that's happening in, in, in the people, but it's also something that we see happening in the life of the priest. So read on with me, beginning in verse 7. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. And on his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. And Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year and your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him. And the young man was to, was to him like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. What's wrong with verse 13 and this kind of approach to God? First, you know, you know this, now I know the Lord will be good to me. First, I think it, the first thing we see that's kind of wrong with this is it, is it minimizes God. You notice here, the, the reward for Micah is the good to me. Now I know that the Lord will be good to me. So the reward for Micah is, is the good to me and not the Lord. And secondly, Micah is thinking, he, he, he's even more dangerously than that, he is thinking that he has the opportunity or the ability to ordain or to set apart or to establish the terms of his relationship and of his worship of God. But the thing is that we see and that the author is highlighting to us is that Micah is falling into the trap of human nature that frankly we all share in our human nature where we lessen God and we... Uh, we attempt to make him agreeable to our terms. That's the root of all sin and all rebellion against God. So the Lord's goodness to me, as Micah recounts it, poor Micah, he had forgotten that the Lord's goodness to him was not found in little idols made of silver, But the Lord's goodness to Micah and the whole people of Israel was in his work in redeeming the people of Israel out of Egypt and in giving them a new land and giving them his presence dwelling amongst them whereby they could could have him amongst them where they, they could dwell with him and they could see that blessing is not found in what he is to us, what he gives to us, but blessing is found in his goodness and in his redemption from sin and his relationship with them. And the same reality is true for us today. The same reality is true that that the goodness of God to us is not navigated through our present circumstances or even what we think that God can do for us. The goodness of God today to his people is measured through his redeeming work in Christ and is measured through the, the new life that he gives to us and the promises that we share in him, not for what might happen today, but the promises we share in him as we walk through each day and as we look towards being in his presence for eternity. And so if you're here with us and you're not, uh, not yet a follower of Christ or you're new to Christianity, 
understand, or I hope that you understand, because sometimes you see on TV or, or, or in the news, you see people that, that promise Christianity as something more like verse 13 of, of, oh, you take this on and the Lord will be good to me and he'll give you what you want or he'll give you what your heart desires. Brothers and sisters, that is not true Christianity. In fact, as we're going to see unfold in this passage, that is, that is a disaster and an offense in the sight of a holy God. But let's walk through and see a God that is greater than what anything we could say he could give to us to be good to us. So as we continue on into chapter 18, in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 18, we're going to skip over verses 1 to 13, but what's going on now is that we're introduced to a tribe of Israelites, the tribe of Dan. And this tribe was seeking some land to dwell in, and they sent spies to check out the land that happened to be where Micah was, where his house was, and his neighborhood was. So these guys, this tribe of Dan, they're seeking land to, to live in, and, and they eventually set their eyes, not on, not on this neighborhood where Micah is, but eventually set their eyes on a city named Laish. But they wanted something at Micah's house first. So read on with me in verses, beginning in verse 14. And I want you to listen in the section, verses 14 to 20. Listen for four times that this, this ephod, this household gods, and this image or this idol is referenced. And see in this, see in this what the gods of the, the, that they're really seeking are. These are little cues that the author uh, of Judges is showing us. Little cues pointing out, here's, here's where the error lies. Okay, So read on with me beginning in verse 14. Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, other household gods, a carved image, and a cast idol? Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites, armed for battle, stood at the entrance of the gate The five men who had spied out the land previously went inside and took the carved image, the ephod, and the other household household gods, and the cast idol, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance to the gate. Now when these men went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the other household gods, and the cast idol, the priest said to them, what are you doing? They answered him, be quiet, don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as a priest rather than just one man's household? Then the priest was glad. He was glad. He took the ephod, the other household gods, and the carved image and went along with the people, putting their little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them They turned away and left. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. And as they shouted after them, the Danites turned to Micah and they said, what's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? And he replied, and listen to Micah's response here. He replied, you took the gods that I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? The Danites answered, Don't argue with us, or some hot-tempered men will attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around 
and went back home. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laish against a peaceful and unsuspecting people. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rohab. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their forefather Dan, who was born to Israel, though the city used to be called Laish. There the Danites set up for themselves the idols, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idols Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. False worship is born out of a false view of God. And this is so visibly illustrated in verse 31. You've seen this ephod, household gods, idols, images carved of silver, and all of this. And they continue to do all this. They war over this. They steal these things. They, they take a land and they do all of this all the time. Verse 31, they continue to use the idols Micah had made. Yet all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. False worship was born out of a false view of God. Micah, the Levite priest, and the Danites had all in some ways become gods in their own eyes. And the one true God, the God who had rescued them out of Egypt, had become small. And so Micah's God appeared to be some kind of financial prosperity. The Danites' uh, God seemed to be some kind of security and, 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 and having dominion over land. And this Levite priest had sadly exchanged his service of the Lord for service to the gods of success and glamour in his work. After all, it's better to be a priest over a whole clan or tribe than just one man. And up the ladder he climbs, exchanging the glory of God for, the, for success in the eyes of the world. And all of these gods would be served by a little superstition of a god who would promise to rubber stamp all of their wildest dreams. Now you might at this point be thinking to yourself, okay, Stephen, I'm not a terrorist. You use that illustration. And I don't have any of these little idols in my home. What's this got to do with me? But let me ask you. Let's say you worship the God that we worship. This God who did lead the people out of Israel. This God who sent His Son. Father, Son, Spirit. Let's say we all in here assume we all in here worship this God or think of ourselves as followers of this God. Let me ask you, what do you expect of that God? What do you ask of that God? More, more particularly, what do you pray for from this God? If you went down and wrote out all of the prayers that you have made over the last week, over the last month, over the last year, over the last five years, what would you be seeking? Would you be seeking a God who does good things, don't get me wrong, like bring healing or His presence to people in sickness or in suffering? Good things. But do your prayers stop there? How often do you pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven? How often do you pray for his word to seep deeply within your heart and deeply within to the hearts of those uh, you love, even to the point where, 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 it, where it proves difficult at times as they wrestle over and grow in seeing the beauty and the goodness of Christ day by day? 
How often do you pray that God would mold that person whom you seem to be in conflict with more and more into the image of Christ? And how often do you pray that his gospel would go forth through you, even giving you opportunity to minister the the good news of Jesus Christ to those that God has brought into your path? May we pray and may we seek the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven and not seek to use this God simply to minister to us and what we perceive He ought to do for us. Now one last thing to note about this passage before we transition on. You see in verse 30 and 31, there, or verse 30, there the Danites set up for themselves the idol. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. So the Danites, they've got to be sitting pretty right here, right? They've got to be feeling good. They've got their Levite priest, but even maybe more than that, they've got Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. They've got Moses' grandson. That's a fast track, right? That is, the, that is the sure sign of God's blessing upon them. They've got all these little idols. They've got the Levite priests. They've got, they've got Jonathan, Moses' uh, grandson. And yet they are in outright rebellion against the God of Moses who led them out of Egypt and the God who gave them priests like this Levite. Friends, do not assume upon the grace and the provision of God in your life just because you have a pastor that you like or because you come from a family of Christians that you admire. Assuming the grace of God to you because you have seen it in others around you is the breeding ground of false worship that is an offense before God. Let us not assume the grace of God because we seem to appear to have it all together. Progressive deterioration, false worship, next leads to seared consciences. It leads to a searing of consciousness. As we transition in to chapter 19, we meet another Levite priest who will be a central character for much of the rest of the story. Verses 1 to 9 tell us that this Levite priest took a concubine for a wife. Now, a concubine was a form of a second-class wife who was mainly there essentially for the role of, of, of bearing children and serving the needs of her husband. And this concubine was unfaithful to her husband, and, and she went back home to her parents in Bethlehem. So she was unfaithful to the Levite priest. She goes home to her parents' house in Bethlehem in Judah, and this priest eventually goes back to get his wife, and soon he and his concubine depart from Bethlehem in Judah to go on their way. And so with that stated, let's begin in uh, verse 10 of chapter 19, reading onward through the rest of the chapter. They're departing from this concubine's parents' home. And it says, But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He went with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. And his master replied, No, we won't go into an alien city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. Just file it away that this Levite priest says, no, we're not staying amongst non-Israelites. Who knows why that was the case? Maybe he thought non-Israelites were more dangerous to them. He added, verse 13, come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. 
So they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them into his home for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the men of the place were Benjamites, came in from his work in the fields. And when he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has, ever, no one has taken me into his house. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, your maidservant, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. The old man replied, you are welcome at my house. Let me supply whatever you need. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. And after they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and to drink. Now I must pause right here. I want you to be aware that the verses to come are in the eyes of many, some of the most, or maybe the most vile and gruesome verses in the whole of the Bible. Let's be ready. Let's read on. Verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house. Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do such a disgraceful thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been done, never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it, consider it, tell us what to do. This text may elicit terrible memories for some of you in here. As I prepared for this sermon, my heart continued to plead with God that he would give great mercy and care to anyone for whom this is the case. I pray that you would be comforted and upheld by the love of God who comes to us in our agony 
And I pray you would be comforted and upheld by the promise of the justice of God, which will be delivered upon all who bring harm to his image bearers. False worship breeds seared consciences. We see this all over this passage. We see the conscience of a Levite priest who justifies the obscene treatment of a woman who is likely more than a slave for his own use and his own pleasure. We see the seared conscience of a father who offers his own daughter and another woman under his roof to the men of the town. We see these Israelite men of Gibeah whose consciences were so ruined that they committed such atrocious acts on this woman. And soon in the pages ahead, we will see the seared conscience of an entire nation as they respond to this terrible event. For some of you, this event with the men beating on the door, wanting to have their way with the visitor in a home, that might remind you of a previous story elsewhere uh, in the Old Testament. You might be familiar with the account in Genesis 19 where the men of Sodom did the same thing in wanting to have their way with visitors in a man's home. And my friends, do not miss the fact that some of the people of Israel have become no different than the people of Sodom who were for so long held up as an example of grotesque rebellion against God. Some of these Israelites have become no different than Sodomites. And brothers and sisters, we do ourselves no service if we read this passage and just shake our heads and dismiss this as primitive behavior that happened 3,000 years ago. And a more modern society and a more educated people would never have such a thing happen amongst them. See, here's the reality. This concubine and this man's daughter were viewed as lower in importance and they were really viewed just kind of as second-class citizens in that time. Not because of Israelite uh, law or instruction, but because the Israelites had taken on the practices and the habits of the culture around them that viewed them as second-class citizens. So let me ask you, does your conscience permit you to abuse or mistreat those who you might view yourself having authority over? Like this man had authority over this woman. Does your conscience permit you to abuse or mistreat those whom you have authority over in your home? Does your conscience permit you to abuse or mistreat those whom you have authority over in your workplace? Does your conscience permit you to abuse or mistreat those whom you have authority, a form of authority over at the tips of your fingers on the keyboard of your computer? See, the men of Gibeah likely had no clue that they were looking exactly like the men of Sodom. And it's highly possible that our consciences permit things all the time that, have, that we have no clue they make us look like the men of Gibeah and the men of Sodom. This type of behavior from a seared conscience can only be married to a puny view of a God whom you are not accountable to and who is weak in justice and holiness. Imagine a Nepali man with his trinkets on his dashboard getting in his car with no second thought to the fact that he just sold yet another young girl into a brothel in Kathmandu. Those trinkets are just supposed to serve his desires. Imagine those who sing songs perhaps from the same hymnals that we sing from today 
who will then defend the taking of the lives of unborn children in the name of personal freedom. The reality that we see in Judges 17-21 to and see even today is that the gods of sexual freedom and sexual expression and, and, and unchecked sexual behavior, these gods breed destruction of lives. And we see it there and we see it here. And do you see this reality, but also do you see that there is grace in Christ? And we're going to begin to unpack that in a moment. There is grace in Christ, and I want you to point, I want you to see this in an unlikely place. You might be asking, okay, where's the grace? Or you might be asking, why is this section in the Bible? What purpose does this passage of Scripture serve in being there? Why didn't God leave this one out? Well, imagine you go to the doctor and you take a CT scan, and it comes back looking very rough. You're not going to get mad, or you're not going to get frustrated with the CT scan. The problem is not, what, is, is not the scan itself. The problem is what the scan reveals. See, this passage, Judges 17-21, to 21, and the whole book of Judges, for that matter, can serve you and I well if we understand that it does not expose the hearts of those that are truly, truly evil, but it exposes the hearts that we all have an inclination towards as human beings who reject God and who, who want to serve the gods that we fashion in our hearts and in our minds and according to our wisdom and according to our seared consciences. And the grace of God is here like that CT scan showing us our need and warning us against ourselves. There's grace in hopelessness due to your own sin and there's grace in brokenness even over the fact that we cannot trust in ourselves. This book cries out you don't need another judge and this book cries out you cannot trust yourself and your own heart. Have you noticed how the end of Judges reveals that though the Israelites were to, to enter the promised land, they remember at the beginning of the, the book, they're supposed to enter the promised land, drive out the false gods from their midst, and, and worship the God who had led them there. They actually enter the promised land, fall in love with the worship of the false gods uh, in their midst, and, and the ways of the land that they had entered into uh, uh, begin to overtake them. And so the ways of the land that we're all familiar to, that we see in these passages of the abuse and the mistreatment of those that, are, those that are inferior to them, that's not an Israelite thing, like I said. That's something that came from the worship of the gods around them. And so how do we view, or how do we treat, or how, what's our attitude towards those that might be mistreated or maligned or, 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 or treated inappropriately around us? Students, going back to school this week, perhaps a good goal for you as you go enter into the classroom This year would be to seek to befriend and get to know the classmate or that person at your school who uh, is different than others and may be mistreated or mocked because of this. What if you befriend them and get to know that person? And what a beautiful, simple, clear picture of the care of God for the marginalized and mistreated it might be for you to walk alongside of them and care for them with the love and the compassion of Christ. So getting back into our text, in verses 27 to 30, this Levite priest cuts off this woman and sends her throughout Israel. Very likely this was done in order to provoke outrage and to rally Israel to join him in his indignation. And the Israelites join him in this indignation and they resolve, uh, continuing on into chapter 20, verses 1-11, through 11, they resolve to take action against the city of Gibeah. And so if you look with me, if we pick up in verse 12, verses 1-11, through 11, they resolve to take action and pick up with me in verse 12 of chapter 20. Now the tribes of Israel sent men throughout the tribe of Benjamin, saying, what about this awful crime that was committed among you? 
Now surrender those wicked men of Gibeah, so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. At once the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their towns, in addition to 700 chosen men from among those living in Gibeah. Among all those soldiers there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Israel, um, Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fighting men. And then verse 18, the Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. And they said, who, shall, who of us shall go up first to fight against the Benjamites? And the Lord replied, Judah shall go up first. And you might make note of this section here. And back in Judges chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the people enter the land and, and they're supposed to drive out their enemies. And they ask God the same question, who shall go up first among us? And the Lord sends out the tribe of Judah first among them. But to show the decline of the people of Israel throughout this book, no longer are they entering the land and driving out those amongst them. They're asking God, who should go up and lead this civil war that we have? Progressive deterioration goes from false worship produces seared consciences and now it's going to lead to destruction of lives. So as we enter chapter 21 in just a moment, in chapter 20, the Israelites eventually gain the upper hand in the civil war between 11 tribes of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin and, and to the point where there's only 600 Benjamite men left and they're taking refuge at the Rock of Rimmon. And the but Israelites, they face a crisis now as these men are holed up taking refuge. And that crisis is, 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 is just another example of their foolish, sinful wisdom fully on display. So read with me starting in, verse, or in chapter 21, okay? Read with me, uh, beginning in chapter 21. Now the men, men of Israel had taken an oath. So keep in mind, there's 600 Benjamite men holed up at this rock of Rimmon. They had taken an oath at Mizpah. Not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. The people uh, went to Bethel, where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. O Lord, the God of Israel, they cried. Why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? And early the next day, the people built an altar and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And the Israelites then asked, who from all the tribes of Israel has failed to assemble before the Lord? For they had taken a solemn oath that anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah should certainly be put to death. And now the Israelites grieved for their brothers, the Benjamites. Today, one tribe is cut off from Israel, they said. How can we provide wives for those 600 men who are left since we have taken an oath by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? And then they asked, which one of the tribes of Israel failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah? They discovered that no one from Jabesh Gilead had come to camp at the assembly. For when they encountered the people, they found that none of the people of Jabesh Gilead were there. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and put to the sword those living there, including the women and children. And this is what you are to do. They said, kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man and they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. So this horrible, grotesque murder of one woman is they're responding in their wisdom by eradicating a city. Men, women, children, everything except for 400 women. The foolish, sinful wisdom of the people of Israel fully on display. Verse 13, then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjamites at the rock of Rimmon. 
So the Benjamites returned at that time and were given the women of Jabesh-Gilead who had been spared. But there were not enough of them for all of them. The people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a gap in the tribes of Israel. And the elders of the assembly said, With the women of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for the men who are left? The Benjamite survivors must have heirs, they said, so so that a tribe of Israel will not be wiped out. We can't give them our daughters as wives since the Israelites have taken this oath. Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to a Benjamite. But look, there's the annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh to the north of Bethel and east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem and, and to the south of Lebanon. Let's go there. So they instructed the Benjamites saying, go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the girls of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, then rush from the vineyards, and each of you sees a wife from the girls of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, do us a kindness by helping them, because we did not get wives for them during the war. And you are innocent after all, since you didn't give your daughters to them. So that is what the Benjamites did. While the girls were dancing in a festival to the Lord, by the way, Each man caught one and carried off her to be his wife. And then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that is the end of Judges. The screen goes black. Everyone went home without a king, doing what was right in their own eyes. 600 women now in forced marriages. A city has been wiped out. A tribe has almost totally been eradicated. No king, they're just done. And hear this. Hear this. This fast forwards to our day as well. For all who are not in Christ, destruction awaits for your false worship and the acts committed through your seared consciences. Destruction awaits as a just result for us putting our own spin as humanity in our day and in our time. We put our own spin on the line of there there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Human nature has not evolved to a point of now doing what is right in God's eyes. We continue to do what is right in our own. And friends, as we close the book of Judges, let the weight of a city in ruins and the weight of daughters snatched away and the weight of all the violence and the gruesome behavior that we have seen throughout these chapters, let that sit. Let that sit. And then turn one page to the book of Ruth. And read the very first verse of Ruth, where it says, In the days when the judges ruled. If you're familiar with the book of Ruth, you're familiar with this is God's response in bringing a king to his people. This screams out that there was no king in Israel, but there was a God over Israel who would bring them a king even in their own rebellion against him. In fact, a good thing for you to do this afternoon or tomorrow or sometime this week would be to reread chapter 17 to 21 of Judges, but then transition right into reading the whole book of Ruth. 
It's only four chapters, reading the whole book of Ruth and seeing how the very end of Ruth ends with this genealogy, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David, saying the story of how God through Ruth would bring about the king that Israel was promised, that Israel would need. Judges, this book, began with a beautiful marriage early on when a father blessed the marriage between a noble man, you remember Othniel, early on in the book, and his daughter. And it has ended with the 600 forced marriages and the treatment of women in the book has just plummeted, shot down. But God has raised up a woman in Ruth, a non-Israelite, through whom he would eventually bring this king. In chapter 17 of Judges, chapter 17, verses 7 to 9, and in chapter 19, verse 1, you read how this first priest and this concubine, they came from Bethlehem in Judah. But now we fast forward to a king who came from Bethlehem and came from a woman who was not a concubine, not in a forced marriage, but who was precious in the sight of God and will fulfill God's promise to use the seed of woman to crush Satan. And this king came to a people in a world full of false worship. He came to a world full of false worship that was so distorted, so corrupted, that their consciences led them to the point that they could destroy God in the flesh and nail Him to a tree, and in doing so, think that they were actually serving God. And so shattered families, broken lives, a nation at war amongst its tribes, and a trail of obscene violence is not the end of the story with Judges. Judges flows onward, but it flows onward right to a man who lies, who hangs dead on a cross as people pass by and mock him at the end of the story. But this man, this Christ, he took upon himself the destruction that we, each one of us, deserve for our sin, for doing things right in our own eyes. He took that upon himself, and he, his life was destroyed for that, but he was resurrected to defeat sin and death. And this risen and reigning King Jesus has and is reversing the order of Judges 17-21. to In His reign, all who come to Him worship in spirit and in truth. And He gives us new hearts whereby our consciences are not seared, but whereby we serve Him with hearts rooted in Christ and the Spirit of God literally dwelling in us and producing, producing hearts that love God and treasure Christ and make much of Him and put others over ourselves and don't mistreat the marginalized and don't abuse those whom we can take advantage of and he compels us this Christ hearts rooted in him he compels us to hold out before those who are all around us marching on this road to destruction hold out before them that there is a king and this king calls to himself all of us and brings us before his throne where we are exalting and beholding that there is a king over Israel there is a king over his church who rules and reigns over his people Let's pray. Praise, praise King Jesus. Thank you for the gift of a book like Judges that helps us set our eyes upon Christ and our need for Christ. Don't let us set our eyes on our own ways, but let us set our eyes on Christ. And behold... Him and His glory and the work that He has done in redeeming false worshipers like ourselves. Let us behold and rejoice in Christ our King.